You are listening to the Global Jewish Voices Podcast, part of the Global Voices Podcast series, hosted by me, Victor Esses. The Global Voices Podcast is a series presented by Global Voices Theatre, where we engage with the writers and translators behind their popular live events, who are based all over the world. In this series, we discuss how identities and personal histories are explored in theatre, as we look at the vastness and complexities of the Jewish experience and the joys and possibilities that exist. L.M. Feldman is a queer feminist playwright, divisor, professor and circus artist. She loves theatre that is audacious and kinetic, honest and intimate, theatrical and slightly impossible. Based in Philadelphia, L. is playwright center core writer, a New Georgia's affiliated artist, and a Shakespeare's new contemporary at ASC. Welcome, Elle, to our podcast. First, I wanted to ask you, where are you right now? I am in my bedroom slash office um, <laughs> uh, in Philadelphia um, on the top floor of a house in like a converted attic. And so it sort of looks like an overturned ship. I'm very excited to talk to you today. There's so much to cover, <laughs> but we'll do what we can. I wanted to start by asking you, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Miami, Florida. The food we ate, it was it was like pretty like uh, Americanized. It was like, I don't know, I'm remembering like one of my favorite meals was Kraft mac and cheese and like, uh, but my mom would make chicken sometimes uh, or like vegetable lasagna with like ragu from the jar but every so often she would make something that felt like Jewish <laughs> like like um we would sometimes get once in a while we get veal chops and that was always like really exciting or my grandmother would make things like I don't know matzo ball soup or brisket or mandel bread so it was some sort of mix of like American and like old world Americanized old world. Yeah. And what kind of music did you used to listen? To? My parents really loved the oldies. My dad really loved the oldies. So that was around a lot. Um, but we also had this like classical music disc set of like the 12 top composers. So that also, what are I mean, those were really uh, Simon and Garfunkel. I don't know. My mom had a thing for like Karen Carpenter. I think those were the the songs of my youth. Where did your family come from? How did they end up in Miami? Well, I mean, a bunch of them were sort of from, you know, Russia, Poland, Latvia, um, Romania, maybe, I feel like. Uh, and I, it wasn't my grand, it was my great grandparents who came over and then my grandparents settled, my dad's parents settled in Miami or Miami beach, there was like a Jewish community there. Um, uh, and he ran a, a linen supply company store there. Um, I can't remember where my mom's parents lived. I know she grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, but eventually they resettled in Orlando. And then my parents themselves met in college in Florida and then said, I think they had teaching jobs offered in Miami and there was a Jewish community there. And I think they had friends there maybe. And that's why they settled. I'm not sure how much of what I'm saying is true, but mm. it's what I remember. 
Yeah, absolutely. And within that, did you hear different languages? Yeah, I didn't appreciate it at the time. I think as an adult now, Oh, I think it was really special to grow up in a bilingual city. I mean, it's a multilingual city, but primarily bilingual, uh, at least in my experience of it. Um, yeah. And yeah. And I feel, yeah, just lucky to have grown up in a place where like so many languages and so many cultures sort of co coalesce and culturally. I think prior to that, my grandparents were like Brooklynites. Um, Jewish Brooklynites. And um, so there was a bit of a like New Jersey, New York, I don't know what culture and sound that came with them that blended with the Miami. Nice. And the Yiddish, did you hear much? No, I wish I had. Um, my my dad's parents spoke, I, I don't know how much Yiddish they spoke, but every so often they would tell jokes and then they would like tell them in Yiddish or tell the punchline in Yiddish. And so it would, you know, or they would like say a phrase in Yiddish and they everyone would like the older folks would laugh and I wouldn't know why. Um, or they would sing songs occasionally in Yiddish, but it wasn't a, it wasn't used conversationally by and large. Um, and I didn't get particularly curious about it until after they had passed. And what about religion was that? Cause the play talks a lot about religion as well. And I wondered. Yeah, we weren't a very, I mean, I got whatever. We were like a not super practicing family, but some mid range. Um, my, I, there was the like, we go to synagogue on the high holy days, of course, and we do the Passover Seder. Um, uh, when I was growing up, we did sort of sh like Hebrew school and Shabbat on Fridays and um, bought mitzvahs for my sister and me. Uh, and then as we got older, it felt like that no longer became important in my uh, nuclear family. And then I remember feeling like, wait, was that just, you were just going to like raise us in that and then like, let it go. It's not important to you. And a lot of confusion around that. It felt more like culturally religious, like we would do rituals, but less uh, like what, like theistically religious. Like I don't remember people talking very much about whether we actually like believed in God or anything. Interestingly to me, as my, my dad has aged, it seems to me he's getting, he's kind of getting increasingly religious, which I guess just surprised me given how it felt like atheistic in some way our household was when we were younger. Yeah. For us, it was kind of the opposite journey. Like my parents, they were, you know, they were a bit religious, but with the years they got more and more religious for sure. Yeah. Like I went to a Jewish school and we had everything. We went to synagogue every Saturday, even Friday night sometimes and, and did the Shabbat, everything. Um, yeah. And then I guess in life, I found different ways later. <laughs> like I had to let go of lots of this stuff, like to be able to to come to live, you know, my full uh, potential or whatever, like uh, as a queer person. So yeah, it'd be interesting to hear your journey about your journey with that as well. Yeah, I I mean, similar in some ways to what you were just sharing. Sort of like after we both uh, had bat mitzvahs and uh, it felt like the family stopped, my parents stopped 
being as invested in our Jewish education. And I remember being confused about that and being like, well, I'll keep it going. <laughs> um, and so I got kind of increasingly invested in it personally uh, in my college years. Um, and I studied, I was like, I really want to learn Hebrew. And so I took Hebrew in college and I uh, was like, why do we know the prayers, but we don't know what they mean. We should be able to know what they mean. And so there was that sort of investment. And then and then I remember hitting feminism and I was like, wait a minute, this is a patriarchal religion. And I don't know why it took me so long to arrive there. But at some point I was like, this is messed up for me. If it was authored primarily by men and it's such a like textual religion, then what hope do I have of, of having this thing that was created by people who not only weren't me, but didn't necessarily have my experiences or best interests at heart or access to what I needed or right. Like, how am I ever going to relate to this thing? And what does it mean to, and like, am I still part of this? Do I want to be part of this? I've never questioned what it would mean for me to not choose to continue in these traditions that feel now that I think of it super oppressive. And then I met a female queer rabbi for the first time. And I got to actually ask her these questions. And some of these questions I had brought to the sort of male rabbis, straight male rabbis I had met and felt like they weren't adequately addressed or validated even as legitimate. I felt like I was hearing like, oh no, it is feminist religion. Look at it this way. And there is room for you. Look at it this way, rather than like, no, you're right. Elle. There, there's things you're noticing that are actually problematic. And so I started to understand reconstructionism as the movement is. What, what is that? Okay. This is my like layperson understanding of it, but reconstructionism seems to be for me about like, we have what we have and, and the authorship of that is super limited. It, it is heteronormative and patriarchal and, but how can we take all of those things and combine them or bring them into our current moment with everything we understand? How can they be as inclusive as possible? How can they be as empowering for everybody as possible? How can they um, how can things from before be modified or applied to contexts right now that are about like liberation for all peoples? So how do we like take all of the problematic language, what I think of as, or what, uh, you know, like, how do we change the lens on any one person or people being a chosen people? And how do we actually like redefine how that could incorporate everybody? So it's much more social equity, social justice values based while holding on to like Jewish traditions, but combining it with a much more contemporary socio-political inclusive mindset. And, and that happens in communities. There are communities that practice that together. Yeah. And in different ways, like even within that, I mean, so it's a denomination. Um, so the same way you'd have like reform or conservative or orthodox, et cetera. Like, so even within that denomination, there's variety um, but they all seem to have that kind of like mission, vision, values in common. I was searching for a place within conservative synagogues and not finding it. I was searching for like my own values to be reflected in reform synagogues and not finding it. And so, so can you explain what those are? Because I, I know America has all these options and all this kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Do they not? You don't have them. We have in in London, or yeah, London definitely has them. I know in Brazil, we, I I always used to hear about reform, mm -hmm. and I always and we were in the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Like I I didn't know beyond that. Mm -hmm. So, but it's possible that I was there. I just wasn't aware of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
but I'm, I've always heard in America there are more like like you've just described. So yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I mean, again, this is like, I'm not the expert on any of this. This is just my layperson understanding. Uh, I, we grew up in a conservative synagogue for a number of years and then there was like a rift and then my parents moved us to a, a reform synagogue. My, as a child, what I understood that to mean was that in a reform synagogue, there were things like more English, less Hebrew, m- more understanding of what was being said um, so that you could be a thoughtful, active participant in it. The cantor would like play guitar and sing like (laughs) Woody Guthrie or like, you know, uh, or like folk (laughs) Jewish melodies in a folk acoustic style. Um, So there was something, it was like a combination in some way of the, I don't know, of tradition and the, the now. This was the reform. Yeah, that was the reform. There was something, it felt, it felt more inclusive. It felt a little less alienating to me because it felt like this is what we're singing about and this is what we're talking about. And this music sounds a little bit more like music that you might have sung around a campfire. It felt more approachable. That said, I also remember in the reform synagogue, my Hebrew learning had really like really plummeted there because in the conservative Sunday school, Hebrew school, I was like learning the language pretty well. And so the conservative would be more Hebrew, more, more Hebrew, more traditional melodies. Um, The reform felt a little bit more like, I I don't know, contemporary or something more, more English. Um, Yeah. And I I came from an Orthodox background, which is uh, men downstairs women upstairs uh, hebrew yeah all the prayers yeah no no music uh, played in the shabbat yeah yeah how do you do you belong to a synagogue now i find that very difficult to do like i've tried a couple of times i've I've found a lot of uh, power in uh, finding other creative Jews and and creating rituals with my partner. We do Passover and we do Rosh Hashanah at home, we invite some friends and and yeah, just recreating these rituals Mm -hmm. has been incredible. And actually, yeah, in the last few years, I I more and more embrace uh, my my Jewish identity through my queer identity Mm -hmm. as well. So so that's been really nice. Yeah, I do. Similarly, I think as an adult, the the household where I live here and the housemates that I have who I adore so much are also Jewish um, and Reconstructionist. And I feel like I've been learning from my seven years of being with them. uh, Yeah, how to take older, how to take traditional rituals and modernize them um, so that they resonate in the current moment in the current world and with your with your own yeah, politics. Yeah, because lots of us grow up with this idea that there's only one way of doing things and, and every other way is wrong for, for our community. Other kinds of Judaism was also like easiest even Judaism, mm-hmm. like sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of opinion. Mm-hmm. And and it's so freeing to actually have so many possibilities and, and, and it is possible. Agreed. So. And to see yourself reflected in it and to feel like there's a sense of belonging that's where you're not having to... I don't know, suppress part of yourself for something. I wanted to talk a bit about your play. Els A People is a lyrical exploration of the history and present of the Jewish diaspora, an ensemble of changing characters journey through heritage, religion, tradition, and humanity across time, space, age, and gender. 
using rhythms, music, unexpected interactions and lyrical contemporary text to examine how one relates to their lineage. Elle will read us an extract. Another voicemail in the ether. Light on a boy leaving us a message. Yo, great, 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 great grandfather. It's Daniel. Pick up. Are you there? Pick up. Pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up. Hello? You're not there. Well, listen, I got a new job. I'm a short order cook. I make eggs at a 24-hour breakfast diner. I'm working at the library. I check in books. I check out books. I shelve. I have a bike route. I'm working as a courier. Dude, I'm working part-time at the local organic farm. I get free milk. What? I'm a baker's assistant. I make croissants and pastries. I make pizzas. I So great, 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 great grandpa. I've got this new job and it made me think of you because, you know, my hands. It's like so much better than all the friggin' academia, anthropology, ornithology, epistemology, postmodern art. Like I'm of worth now, you know? All of me, like my body matters now, my muscles, my arms, my feet and fingertips, my bones, you know, my job finally needs feet. I feel so like connected to you, you know, in a way I didn't before because I didn't like sew or tailor or like haberdasher and shit. I wrote like essays and I made like conceptual art and like important. Yeah, but transitory evanescent, gone. And like that hat you made your son, it's still like in mom's closet, you know, it lasted, it exists. I really want the shit I make to exist. I want to end up in my like progeny's closet someday. I don't know. I mean, if I have a progeny, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I call to tell you that like your hands are still making hats. They just look like eggs in a short order cook line. I love you. So that's Daniel. Amazing. Amazingly read. Thank you. I just love the amalgamation of so many uh, things Jewish that you include in the play and the rhythms and the music and, and the history. And there's so much there and 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 it's so skillfully done like from one thing to the next and the way you play with text as well like you you have you know big letters small letters like maybe it's um, i don't yeah it'd be good to hear if there's an intention for you behind it um yeah why why did you write this play thanks victor that's kind um why did I write the play or why did I write it with the big letters and the small letters and the stuff? Both. Okay. <laughs> um, I wrote it, I played with the formatting on this play. Uh, I, for two, for two reasons. The f- first was that uh, I really wanted reading it. At the time I was thinking a lot about how, um, how much of a, an experience I want this play to be, how I don't want it to feel like the lights go dim and we sit back in our seats and we feel very separate and we watch this story go and then it ends and then we get up and then we go home. Like I, it should feel like a ritual. It should feel participatory and communal and um, we should feel like we're a part of it. And so because of all of that, um, I, I wrote it with the hope that the reader 
like as if I could capture on the page the way that the play wants to move and sing and dance and kind of spatially what's happening. If it's an argument, then there's probably lines on the left and lines on the right and they're going against each other. Or like if something is whispered, then it should be in all lowercase or italicized. And so I thought about like, how can I yeah, capture the experiential nature of it on the page so that the reader can have that, that sense of the play, the play, like the playfulness of it the sensorialness of it and the movement, I guess, of it too. I also, I had tried to write this play. I was like, I want to write a play wrestling with like being Jewish, like my relationship to being Jewish and being feminist and being queer and being gender nonconforming and like how all of this fits together. And what do I do with all of that? And there's such a push-pull relationship I have with it. And also my, you know, my grandparents are alive, but they're not going to be alive for much longer. I mean, now they're not anymore, but when I wrote the play, they were... I was like, I really want to capture something. I really want to have conversations that I don't feel like I can have out loud. Um, I tried to write it like you would write a play play where I, there's like a character or like a few characters and we focus on their story and their journey and their perspective over the course of an hour. Um, and I couldn't decide on anything. Um, and when I finally arrived at like multiplicity that it could be a story about many, many people and this could be a mosaic play, although I didn't have the language for it then, but uh, then I it started to come out and it started to also come out on the page um, in that kind of spatially playful way. So once I was allowed to shake things up, um, everything started to come out. I think it just took me a really long time to figure out like it needed to be a kaleidoscope and not like a single beam of light or something. Uh, yeah. And do you think that also um, reflects Jewish experience. I or, think so. <laughs> or all those parts of your identity, I guess, as well. Yeah. Can... I mean, I wanted it to be a story about like an entire people, <laughs> or to the best of my ability, knowing that it's, you know, still just one person who's writing it down. But like, there, yeah, what was so complicated is like, how do we all coexist? We all seem to have this, like, we all seem to want to belong to something together. But also we have contradictory beliefs and practices. And some people say you don't count as a Jew if X, Y, or Z, or, um, uh, and like, I, you know, uh, yeah, things have been lost. Things have been held onto. Things have been re dug up. Things have been recontextualized. So what does it mean? What's holding us together? Is anything holding us together? What if nothing holds us together anymore? And, you know, ideally I would be asking these, voicing these questions uh, about like the Jewish people, but uh, hopefully folks from kind of other cultures and identities or communities might find some of these questions resonant. Like the hope was that it wouldn't only be a play for Jews. I never intended it to be only a play for Jews. Yeah. And how do you make those decisions of what to include in such a vast history and 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 types of people and, and countries and, and Europe, Middle East and, and Americas and yeah, beyond? <laughs> it's a good, I mean, I tried to get as broad as I could while still staying somewhat connected to the things that either that I knew best or that resonated most. I mean, I'm, I'm, there's very little Sephardic identity in the play, as I'm sure you note. Um, uh, um, kind of among others, there's not a whole lot of orthodoxy in the play. You know, there's like, so a lot of it is Ashkenazi bent. Um, 
and so how can the play, I don't know, both like own the authenticity and specificity of what my own experience and research is and my own like family history, but also acknowledge like if these questions pertain to even just this, then they certainly pertain when you go here to here to here to here to here and like get broader and broader. And I know that the audiences that when we produce this, the folks who tended to um, find it most resonant, like one of the communities that found it most resonant were, were like first gen kids, um, adults of immigrants. Uh, and there were just like a lot of questions around like, yeah, it's the similar things about uh, what do you choose to hold on to? What do you let go of a sense of responsibility for carrying something forward that does or doesn't resonate for you anymore? Um, or that can feel sometimes limiting. Um, anyway, I love, I love that. Like that's a lot of what I work with is what do you hold on to and what do you let go? It's a big um we have choices and, and we can use them. So. Yeah. And you you also play with gender, obviously, like you, you ask that male actors be played by female performers. And I guess, yeah, there must be space as well for, you know, whatever gender across to whatever gender in the big spectrum. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really important to me. It's, I, I find the religion pretty like, heteronormative and cis and so how do I queerify this felt really important so the cast it's it's a mix across I mean in an ideal world it's a mix of like multiple ages and multiple genders and gender identities and so and I mean ideally also multiple religious cultures um, or heritages and so the note is that much of the play lives in the action of embodying or evoking the people that you're connected to rather than literally representing them it's about how we think of them how we what assumptions we make or what we've held on to how do how we editorialize them how we imagine them historically how we misunderstand them and so characters being cast across age and across gender feels really important because everyone is sort of reaching to yeah evoke or step into people who aren't of their time or place or gender or age or experience and, and try to understand and find resonance and connection there. Right. And, and yeah, that also makes me think because even the more traditional people of the world, they are not like they were 500 years ago. Like they, sometimes they hold on as if like it's the same tradition, but things evolve even when you're trying to hold on so strongly, isn't it? And, and recognizing that can be a, an empowering thing. Agreed. Agreed. And I think things get illuminated when you, I think there's something interesting that happens when someone like me, who is not a cis man, plays Heschel, who is a cis man, suddenly the there's like a both and that happens right you're both hearing my take on something and you're also hearing heschel's take on something at the same time and so i find there's something really magical about that it's the same thing there's that moment where like the sister and the bride or something there's like two women two young uh, oh there's yeah the bride and her sister are like then the bride's going to get married and they have this mikvah but they're played by two young men and so you're both getting the story of like these two young women in their, in their like excitement and like naivete around like what's going to happen with this, like after the marriage. And also like, I'm sad to lose you because you're going to move households. 
Um, but you're also getting like the queerness of two, two guys. And I, I don't know, there's just something poetic and lovely that starts to happen, like harmony. You talk a bit about trauma when you, you talk about your work. Where does that come from? For you. I mean, all of us, right? As we grow up, we're like very aware of the Holocaust. We're very aware of the cost, the trauma. There's an identity. There's like a very strong identification with the loss and the event and being a people who suffered and were decimated by it. And I also noticed that that was such a defining part of the Jewish identity for me growing up and such a part of like Jewish art seemed to be about, and like plays, so many seem to be revolving around the Holocaust. And I was like, but there's so many other, there's like, <laughs> there's a vastness and a richness of other narratives, identities, places and times that can be mined. And so uh, there was a part of me that wanted to like, how, like, can I write a play about the Jewish people without it being so Holocaust centric, without dishonoring all of the loss and the trauma from it. And so how do you, yeah, how do you sort of both end it, but not have it centered? Yeah. The Holocaust trauma is present wherever, you know, you're going to tell these stories. But absolutely, like sometimes when you focus on the next step or, or, or whatever it is, it's still there, but you don't need to go back and be present in that place because it doesn't really take you obviously we, we need those works and we need lots of them but but that's not the only I, I love what you said it's the only thing to explore and so much existed before it and how can we unearth all of the moments before it too all of the people before it all the legacies before it all the identities before it um how do we how like what other what other identifiers for ourselves can we hold on to besides like, I feel like there's such a victim identity that's part of that, which is very real. And also there are other, and a survivor mentality, but, and what, what else is separate entirely from what else exists? What I was going to say too, is that I think if, you know, if there wasn't already a body of very rich, important, gorgeous, uh, haunting work, about the Holocaust, then I might've been drawn to pick up my pen and write about it. But because there's already a canon of work around it, I felt like, okay, well, what hasn't been written about? What hasn't been voiced? Which I think in general is sort of my approach to when I write plays, like what, what isn't getting talked about? And what can I contribute? How is it growing up queer in a Sephardic setup? Very difficult. It was very conservative and, and a very patriarchal community, very insular. Um, there wasn't a lot of connection outwards. So it was very isolating because there, wasn't, there weren't any examples of other queers uh, being out. Even in the wider society at the time, obviously we've moved on a lot now, but at the time in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't the case. So to find who you are and that you are okay and to feel worth it, it was a long journey, I guess. Yeah. And you you felt like you had to leave in order to get that space. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't speak to like what it was for the entire Ashkenazi experience, right? No, but like for my for own you. personal family, like I didn't see out queers to my knowledge. My parents weren't friends with any out queers. Uh, eventually, as I got older, I remember meeting like one gay male couple that they knew and being like, oh my God, this is really exciting. But I don't remember any queer women as I was growing up. And it wasn't in the media either, really. Like there, it hadn't hit our mainstream. So I just didn't know it was kind of an option. 
I wish I had known sooner. But I also think more than like sexuality queerness, I also think like gender queering, like not a thing. When I was growing up, Jewish gender roles felt really like binary. Um, the men did this and the women did this and the women, you know, the women cooked and they cleaned the, the house uh, at least like, I mean, it was maybe a little bit starting to change for my parents' generation, but not a whole lot, but like certainly my grandparents' generation, like that was the expectation. Like the women would like get up and serve the men, the women would clear the table and the men would stay seated and talk amongst themselves. And like the men were the business people and like the women worked, but I don't know, it was really divided. And certainly when I looked at like ancient texts and you've got texts around, like, you've got all these like dudes who are like, here's what women should do when they have periods. And you're like, wait, you didn't even, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a period? You haven't had a period. Like, why are you creating rules for us around periods? Um, and then like reading about like, this is, <laughs> there's so few rights <laughs> given to women or to female children, it, like ancient, like biblically, like in these texts. And if the man dies, then his brother acquires his wife. <laughs> um, so that's, I don't know. I mean, that infuses everything, right? It underlies everything. All of our rituals then have that foundation. Yes, I hear you. Can you talk to me about kvetching that it's mentioned in your play? <laughs> kvetching, like complaining? That's my association with it. It's like, I just need to kvetch for a while. I just need to like unload some steam or complain, or you can use it pejoratively, right? Like quit kvetching, Victor, and just take the trash out. That's a, a Yiddish word. Yes. <laughs> um, they're really, they're really colorful Yiddish words. Like I, I find Yiddish. Yeah. I, it makes me sad that I don't know more of them because the ones I know feel like perfect to describe, you know, like particular shades of human experience and behavior. Where does Jewish identity or existence meets joy for you? Wow. Okay. That's a great question. I find a lot of joy in community, in building community and being part of community. It feels like a, as we're like in a digital age and certainly with a pandemic, like community is one of the things that's falling apart it, to, for me in my life. We're losing it. And I'm sure that's part of why I love theater is it's such a, it's a, you have to be in community while you're watching it. And so, yeah, something I've really treasured in the seven years I've been here my, the women I live with are really intentional. Um, and we create rituals together as a household, as a found family. Um, we create kind of gatherings, uh, that create community. And I just, I find so much joy. I mean, they're reconstructionist, but that just feels like a technical word that doesn't quite capture the feeling of it. It there's like a reclaiming and an adaptation. So I know that I can feel the essence of the Jewish practice that is that this comes from, and I'm able to apply it for connection right now. And the joy that comes from that of, I guess, bringing the then and the now together and doing these things in community. There, somebody once said, like, you can't be a Jew by yourself. Something about that brings a lot of joy. That sounds incredible. Considering everything we discussed, 
What are your hopes for the future of theater, of Jewishness, or Jewish with theater? Yeah, greater intersectionality among Jewish art, um, like more perspectives that get to, like, who haven't we heard from? What stories haven't we been telling? Who else can we give the microphone to? What are, how do we diversify? We're still trying to dismantle the assumption of like Jewish and white. How do we amplify the voices and the tales that we haven't been hearing or, or seeing? And yeah, to me, how can we embrace the complexity of mm-hmm. all of this as well mm-hmm. within the intersections, within whiteness or not, mm-hmm. within the whole spectrum of things that we can't always be so clear mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. The multiplicity that I love that, but yeah, the complexity of it, how does the, how does the before resonate in the now, which I think is a question that we're asking as a society in general right now. And how do we best move forward? Thank you so much. This was incredible. Thank, Thank you. you. It was a real pleasure, Victor. And thanks for sharing everything from you as well. Pleasure. Global Jewish Voices is hosted by me, Victor Esses, edited by Tony Olani-Pekan, and produced by the Global Voices Theatre team. This podcast series is supported by Arts Council England. To hear more about the work of Global Voices Theatre, visit globalvoicestheatre.com or follow them on Twitter for news and updates on at globalvoicesth or Global Voices Theatre on Facebook. To find out more about my work, visit victoresses.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram on at Victor S's.